Welcome to the Webbed Podcast, the newest source for the crypto curious that unblocks the mystery of blockchain and teaches you the A to Z of NFTs. I'm your host, Sheila Lirio Marcello, an entrepreneur, educator, founder of Care.com, and CEO of Proof of Learn. My first venture disrupted Web 1 and grew with Web 2. Now I'm out with another mission-driven adventure of learning and growing in Web 3. Crypto is a big, exciting, and to many of us, a bewildering world. Let's explore it together. We created this podcast to simplify and celebrate the ins and outs of the new economy and decentralized web. On each episode of Web, I'll guide a conversation between someone who's been to crypto land and someone interested in going there. You can think of me as your bridge to the metaverse. I know you'll enjoy the ride. And yes, we'll explain what the metaverse is too. Welcome to this episode of Webbed, where we bring you insights and perspectives of the crypto curious and the crypto confident. I'm your host, Sheila Lirio Marcello, and I'm delighted to be joined virtually by two special guests who are actually both in the technology industry. One is crypto confident, the other is crypto curious, but cybersecurity confident. We're going to address the very important issue of cybersecurity as the crypto curious can often be hesitant to engage in the crypto ecosystem due to a lack of trust or understanding in the cybersecurity around Web3. My friend Andrew Durgy is truly an OG within the crypto community, having pioneered early blockchain technology plays, including an industry-first multi-signature wallet repository in 2010. While 2010 may seem like only yesterday to some, in reality, it was over a decade ago, and throughout that time, Andrew has built strong tech and crypto companies and networks within this space, and he currently is the managing partner and head of crypto and tokenization at Republic, a private investing platform for investors seeking high growth potential. I'm also happy to have Tazeen Khan Norelius join us. Tazeen is a cybersecurity specialist and the founder of Cyber Collective, a community-centered research organization whose mission is to educate the public by highlighting the voices of the marginalized and under-resourced and positioning them at the center of the data ethics dialogue. Tazeen founded Cyber Collective after her ethical privacy concerns at the companies she previously worked for that had gone unanswered, and she's been educating the public about cybersecurity ever since. Currently, Cyber Collective's goal is to help one million people become safe, secure, and confident in their daily intersections with technology. And today she's joining us as a crypto curious, but security confident guest. I wanna start by asking a simple question that I like to discuss with all my guests. Why do you think folks should learn about and invest in crypto? Let's start with Andrew. Oh, great question. Super happy to be here. I think the reality is this question comes up all the time in other different cycles, especially in technology, right? Like, uh, I'm sure this question came up as why invest in the printing press? Why invest in television or radio? Why invest in television? Why invest in the internet? And, and I, I think it, it just comes down to this is the next iteration of, of human development, both from a technology standpoint and a social standpoint. And, and there's impacts of that technology that we're already seeing, you know, at, at these kind of early stages. Web3 and is still very, very new. And, and, and Web3 itself is really just a rebranding exercise. We want to be super honest with ourselves. Uh, we in the industry have gone through a, a series of rebranding effects going from 
originally um, being crypto to then blockchain, then to a little stint in something called DLT, which is distributed ledger technology, uh, and then back to crypto. And now we're on Web3. And Web3 seemingly is a lot more digestible for people, although albeit a fairly arrogant term if you really think about it, because Web2 itself is large and all-encompassing into a position that Web3 is the next web two? I think uh, there's probably some hubris that needs to be there. Um, but anyway, from a from a marketing standpoint, I think it's a lot more consumable. The fact of the matter is, the industry as a whole, technology is moving in this direction, and because Web three or crypto or blockchain or DLT, whichever you want to call it, it in and of itself is industry agnostic, right? So it can be deployed into a variety of different spaces, whether that's from music or film, or finance, or, or art. Uh, and it's not often that you see a, a new technology layer that is truly agnostic from that standpoint. So I, I think what I would tell people, it may be not from the investing side, as a, uh, I am not a financial advisor, nor do I give investment advice. Everyone should start out their podcast with that. <laughs> but um, I think what I would say is to take notice. That's probably the most important way. Is to take notice, learn, educate yourself, ask questions. Uh, don't assume what you read is fact uh, and, and find resources that you, you find credible and valuable. And there's more and more of those resources being developed every day. Thanks, Andrew. You know, Tazine, I, uh, we're actually recording this podcast while we're on Zoom, so we get to see each other live. I know that you, you had a, a facial reaction, especially that you agreed and you had a thumbs up when Andrew said, there's an arrogance in how we call Web3, but yet it's consumable. Love to just dig a little bit deeper on what you, you thought about Andrew's answer to the question of why learn and invest in crypto. I couldn't agree more. And um, I'm also inspired to continue my education. And I think a lot of people make the assumption often that because I'm a security specialist, that I am a crypto specialist, but that is not the case at all because they're very two different galaxies, even in how information can be learned, distributed, et cetera. But as far as what Andrew said, I was agreeing because I think that there is a, a lot of dialogue around Web3 and specifically Web3 in conjunction to accessibility. And it's assumed because Web3 is decentralized that everyone has the opportunity to participate, to understand, to get involved, to become autonomous with their relationship at, 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 with the internet and how they use it. And I think while those are all definitely parts of that are completely viable, there are folks that are still, you know, learning about Web2 properly, right? Like there are, are a ton of educational gaps, um, accessibility gaps, and just confident gaps, right, uh, to how we um, engage with our relationship with technology and the internet itself. So I really did love the way that Andrew put like Web3, like all of the rebranding that's <laughs> happening, right? Because essentially, it's all the same places that we're going. You know, my mom asked me, she was like, wait, so like Web3, do I have to go somewhere else? Are there going to be new <laughs> devices? Like, where do we find Web3? And even that as a concept, right? Like the feedback that people are giving um, is really interesting. And that's why I really appreciated Andrew's take on that. Because I don't always hear a lot of crypto confident folks explain things that way. So I'm appreciative. Love Andrew. He's always straight up super direct. So 
So Tazine, let's dig deeper on this. So what is it about Web3 or crypto or DLT or blockchain excite you? Do you invest in the space? I'm so excited to be speaking to you because of this misconception that you started to talk about. And you're so well-versed in technology and you're very knowledgeable around technology and just even distinguishing cyber from crypto. So what is it about this space excites you or not? And does it apply to you? Always excited because one, I'm a nerd. I'm just a, <laughs> a hard nerd. I love sci-fi. I you know just finished reading Ender's Game for the, the nerds out there oh. in these streets. So I think that the possibility and what crypto does offer to people is gargantuan. It's truly, truly just phenomenal what crypto, the access that it's providing, the opportunity that it's providing. Have I personally dug into the crypto world? I can't say that I have because you can only be an expert in so many. And as I have focused my efforts within the tech ethics, security, and privacy space, that's been where my head has, um, I've been heads down there, let's say that. But what excites me is you know, as I research how to be secure, right, um, within Web3, the metaverse and the crypto space, I'm learning more about it. I do have some small investments here and there. That's something that I don't manage. <laughs> I <laughs> have managed on my behalf because outsourcing is so wonderful. And um, <laughs> but I, I, I was most excited to join this podcast because I have been thinking a lot about investing into crypto. And I want to add that, you know, we went from, I mean, financial literacy at large for me has been mm -hmm. something that culturally, historically, I'm, I'm an immigrant, you know, I'm the okay. daughter of immigrants. My dad's a taxi driver. My mom worked at a Walmart. Mm -hmm. I've been a provider to my family since I was 14 years old. So for me, financial literacy is a privilege that I am now, I have the opportunity to learn more about. and then. Now there's crypto financial literacy. And so I'm just taking things one at a time, <laughs> you know, because you can't really do it all at once. No, totally makes sense. Now, as a cybersecurity expert, as you're doing the research, what are the security concerns that come to mind? And when you have an expert like Andrew here, who's also a technologist, you know, what kinds of things as a consumer as a potential investor, where you want to make your own direct investing and not even outsource, and because you're a cyber expert, like what gives you pause? And I'd love Andrew, who's crypto confident, to then just give some guidance on how you want to think about it, because you yourself are an expert. I think the biggest piece is that one investing outside of the actual blockchain method or the crypto that you choose itself. It's the wallets and the places that the technology is actually stored. And that's where I get pause is knowing which crypto wallet to use, knowing what mediums are the most secure. And that takes a lot of, I guess, from my end, a lot of research, or at least knowing people within an organization itself to understand what does your security infrastructure look like? How are you handling different phishing scams? How are you communicating to your consumers that this is you and perhaps this phishing scam is not you? 
And um, Andrew mentioned it earlier, right? Like doing your research, making sure you're reading and uh, getting as many sources as possible because the internet has is wonderful and the beauty of information is great. But then there's also the dark part of it, which a lot of the information can be manipulated. So for me, it's not knowing, you know, do I start with OpenSea? Is OpenSea secure? Do I go to, you know, what ledger do I use? And those are the kinds of questions. And I'm a very much like, I, I need to know somebody. I'm a know somebody That's kind right. of a gal. I'm a pick up the phone and call someone. So I haven't developed those relationships in the crypto space yet. And that's really what's kind of kept me from diving all the way in. And then also time. Okay. <laughs> I would say. Yeah. Thank you for that. Before, Andrew, you answer that question, just a couple definitional things, because this is the web podcast. OpenSea is a marketplace that you can go visit to buy non-fungible tokens, uh, often uh, art and other things, right? And Ledger. Uh, that Tazin used as a terminology is actually could be a hard wallet that often is something that has a USB uh, port that you can connect to your computer and that you can then pull out and carry around and that records information often described as a hard wallet. So just good for our, our listeners to actually get some of those definitions. But Andrew, turning it over to you, you know, as Tazin, you're hearing Tazin, she's a cyber expert. She has concerns around wallet security, where to even begin. How do you talk to consumers now that Web3 is more consumable and you and I have this vision and mission to onboard more people into our industry, into Web3, because we're down the rabbit hole and we believe in it. So what, what would you advise new consumers as they're going into this with regards to assessing options and where to begin? Yeah, no, absolutely. And first off, Tazeen, you can call me anytime. You can dial me up. You can ask Sheila. I'm available all hours. <laughs> Be careful what you say and offer. I'll tell you that. <laughs> we do text from all over the world. I always say, where is Andrew today? <laughs> um, and just Republic in general, uh, education is a big part of what we do. And you know, as part of our mandate is we'll always stop to answer questions. Like that's Everyone on the Republic crypto team um, knows that that's the mandate and it's part of our mission. I think uh, let's kind of uh, eat this elephant one bite at a time. So there's a couple items here. You know, first is I think it's important to identify where we sit in the cycle of the technology uh, deployment and architecture. We have just recently started to move outside of the innovation layer and into the adoption layer. Okay, And it's really important to identify that because we're really just scraping the surface of that. And the project that Sheila's working on is amazing because it explicitly attacks that aspect. Timing is actually very good. So the ability to, to move towards the adoption side comes with a couple of pieces. One is being able to abscond the blockchain layer or the, or the, uh, the technical layer away from the retail user. Retail users, when they go on to Salesforce, they don't know that Salesforce sits on a really ugly layer of Apache you know, our, when they go into Windows, you know, they don't, may not remember having to go into MS-DOS and command line script to use it, right? So these are, these are the evolutions that create an adoption layer to bring on everyday regular people, these retail people. So we're just now starting to cross into that. And with that comes a lot of responsibility, especially around security. And the big difference between those technologies moving into adoption and this is there's actually 
real consequences, financial consequences with at, in, uh, within this particular stack. Previously, you would lose maybe your information, your computer be hacked, and people would get access to your email or whatever it is. There's financial implications now for that security layer. And it's the responsibility of the industry to be, make sure that we're attacking that pragmatically and effectively. So as we start to move from this adoption layer, where we're bringing on these people, we need to make, make sure that we're adding that a layer of security and protection in, or, in order for, for them to be comfortable moving financial assets you know, through this vehicle. And maybe it's not even just financial assets. Maybe it's art. You know, maybe it's things they personally find valuable. You know, A lot of times, everyone associates crypto with money. It's like a very common thing. And, and the fact of the matter is Satoshi's white paper uh, and quick history lesson, there's an anonymous programmer that created blockchain technology. He wrote a paper, Satoshi white paper. Everyone should read it. It's only a couple pages. It's super consumable. It's not extremely technical. But this entire conversation that we're having in the previous 13 years of technology development is all based on this one document, right? So it's a great place to start. And in fact, I always encourage people to start there. But the money aspect of blockchain is the proof of concept. Bitcoin, which is the first proof of concept associated with blockchain, was the easiest to understand because it was a money associated with money, creating money, creating wealth. But the reality is, again, back to kind of this agnostic industry perspective, is there's other things that are valuable that aren't money, right? And we're seeing that now. We saw this huge run in the NFT space in the last 12 months. Um, and there's going to be more around music and film. So I, I, it's really more so about the ability to transfer a digital asset from one storage to another. That's what blockchain is. In the simplest, simplest form, if you want to look at it, it's the first scenario where you can digitally transfer an asset, or transfer a digital asset from one place to another without creating a copy. Right? Now, money is a good use case for that, right? Because I have Bitcoin and I send it, you know, split it in half and send it equally to my partners here on this call. And I no longer have it. No, they have it. And that is a really, really important designation because that's it's from there that we find ourselves moving into this basically new technology space. Uh, and it all comes back down to that original concept. Now, there's all types of things now that are built on top, right? There's all other different things from super technical zero knowledge proof solutions to funny NFT cats and all these other pieces. But at the end of the day, it comes back to the ability for someone to be able to physically hold and own a digital asset. And if they so choose, transfer that digital asset to somebody else. Now, we come back to the adoption side of things. Now that we're in a position where that, that is now a proven technology, we know that that works. We know that it works at scale in a lot of, in a lot of places, maybe not at, at a global scale, but it's working at scale it comes back to well, as we start to onboard everyday users into that into this new environment, and it is comes at an extreme amount of responsibility for us to do that in a way that they feel secure and confident. And there's technologies that have done this well. Coinbase has done a good job of it. The exchanges, honestly, are generally the best at it, uh, first and foremost, because I think they have the highest risk profile, mm -hmm. and and that's 100% strictly financial assets. It's nothing mm -hmm. else. And so they kind of cut their way through first. And, and I think Coinbase and FTX and Binance and Colby, they, they've really done a good job at that. And I think you're going to start to see 
them do more of the innovation there. They also have nearly unlimited money, so they can really, uh, <laughs> really, really open up the uh, the pocketbook or the wallet, so to speak, and uh, uh, and spend money deploying on it. And it's important to them, right? Because th- there's only two places that those exchanges can grow uh, their volume, and it's either on the institutional side or the retail side, and they have mm-hmm. extreme focuses on both. So I think you'll see a lot of the innovation come out of there. The other area that you're going to see a lot on the adoption side also is just from regular everyday people. Mm-hmm. Beautiful thing about blockchain generally is it's open source. The reason the industry mm-hmm. moves so fast and, and the reason it's really hard to stay up on it, even myself, who I live and breathe and eat it, my favorite part about the industry is it's forever education. You are always a student. Every day there is something new coming out. And it's because of this open source mentality and these community mentality. Everyone can build on it, right? Anyone can go build a product on Ethereum or on Polygon or Avalanche, right? Everyone has the ability to do that because it's, it's open source and it's readily available to them. And you will, it's important to note, we are at a, a period of time now where 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds have only existed in a world where digital assets, where Bitcoin existed, right? In two more years, 16-year-olds, right, will have only existed in, or three more years, 16-year-olds will only existed in a world where Bitcoin and digital assets existed. Those are the people that are going to be creating the new wave of innovation and adoption because they are truly native to the space. They have only existed in a world where that has existed. And those are the ones that are going to push the adoption layer harder than anybody else. I love that. You are such an advocate for the space, but obviously I'm way down the rabbit hole with you on this. Tazine, what do you think of that? What did you just hear about just because you touched on accessibility? You were, you were also touched on the fact that in Web3, again, in that sort of arrogant consumable branding of Web3, you had touched on, is it really accessible for all or is that a really a branding thing? And yet, Andrew's highlighting here that one of the things that he's passionate about, and I'm certainly passionate about, is the accessibility for all to access the technology and to build on it, given the power of open source. I love the way you broke everything down, Andrew. For me, these kinds of conversations, that was one of the main reasons why I was open to joining this podcast was because I was so excited to learn because I, like I said, I truly learned through conversation. And I think that you know, especially as you talk about the innovation layer, uh, as opposed to the adoption layer and breaking apart the fact that like, you know, there are places where there's a hundred percent financial assets or not. I think that dichotomizing the, the entire scope of what crypto is itself is really helpful for one. Two, I couldn't agree more with the fact that it is open source and it allows everything to move quickly. Um, There is forever education. Anyone can indeed build products. And this upcoming generation is already doing so much um, within the technology space and will continue to. And this is the life that they know. I I also believe that, you know, there are a ton of people that perhaps, or myself, like it's overwhelming with how quickly things are moving and how much you can do. Because one day I learn about this and then the next day it's like, oh snap, (laughs) all of that may be a little different or there's more to expand. 
and adopt. So I think that at least personally, and I can't speak for everyone that that's a little intimidating and also exciting at the same time. So that's a piece of it. And then the accessibility piece, and this is where we kind of dial into the more the ethics of things and where a lot of the folks that I admire, like the Dr. Sophia Nobles of the world, Ruha Benjamin, who else? Kathy O'Neill, all of these incredible people that have been talking about technology, ethics, and then specifically around social justice. You know, I, I think there's an element of we're still patching and putting band-aids on some of the systems that were created related to web one and two and how what the downstream effects and potential harms of that technology have been on society. And I think that Web3 has an impeccable opportunity and has already freed us of so many of those potential ethical, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess some of the things that I guess hold us back, especially as we consider the infrastructure just at large in that cannot keep up with what Web3 is doing right now, right? Like our government infrastructure or a lot of the policies and compliance that are in place. And I believe in slowing down. So I think what I take away from this is as we move very quickly and adopting new products and technologies and learn more about Web3, I'm excited to be a critical thinker in this process and continue to learn from familiar people and perhaps take the time to ask the questions that are more related to potential ethical pitfalls and not to be a Debbie Downer or anything, but it's just these things need to be considered. And because they weren't considered in the past, we're dealing with the consequences of those things. And um, I find it my duty to ask those questions. And that's where I'm at, but I'm excited regardless. That's so awesome. Can I ask a question? Yeah, yeah, please go ahead. When did each of you get your first email address? Do you remember? Damn. It must have been in college, probably my sophomore year in college. That would be. So that's what, 2001? Oh, gosh. Yeah, you're saying I'm a lot younger than that. <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was like 1990, 1990, 91. Yeah, yeah, it was very early. It was one of the earliest. I, I was one of the earliest. I was very yeah. nerdy, too. That's super early. Um, I, we didn't get a computer in our house until probably like, uh, I don't know, like 2000, 2001. So yeah, my, uh, my, um, I I think my username was like mommy got vocals was the username. (laughs) That's awesome. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm going to email mommy vocals at (laughs) AOL.com. It is definitely at AOL.com. Yeah. We were using, we were using net zero at the time for our dial up. Yeah. It was college. College was really a computer class and they were showing it to us and encouraged everyone to get an email. We were like, what is this? So we're not, that's 1991 and everyone here would probably say that's pretty early, right? But do you know when email was actually invented? Mm. What would be your guesses? 70s, 70s, 80s. Yeah, 70s, 80s. Yeah. My guess. What's your guess? Um, I was just reading something that told me a few months ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I know. 
I think like late 70s, early 80s, yeah. So email was invented on October 29th of 1969 uh, on the original ARPANET, okay? And then really came more so like a prominent like pro like technically used in 1971 there's a guy named ray tomlinson and he invented what's technically known as electronic mail he was the first one and then they started really using it pretty heavily in, in ibm systems and stuff in the 70s right and then and then in the 80s actually it was as much larger than people realize actually in the 80s mm-hmm. the reason i'm bringing that up is where i want understanding innovation versus adoption is really important because mm-hmm. you were talking about an innovation that took place 30 years right? Before you touched it, 20 years before Sheila touched it, Mm -hmm. right? And and so we have a long way to go. And what's really interesting about adoption is adoption actually doesn't speed up as much. Like technology doesn't really speed up adoption that much more because human beings still have to learn it, understand it, digest it. And most importantly, a new generation has to come in that's innately involved in that technology in order to really push it forward. Mm -hmm. So you can only uh, accelerate that model so much. So we're still incredibly early in this cycle. And, and, you know, we're in the 1979 or 1980 version of email from when it was originally created. And I think it's important to, to be able to understand that perspective. That's a really good perspective. I mean, one of the things Tezine was touching on was, I think you were looking for a phrase like unintended consequences when technology speeds up and her advocacy is, hey, at times it's important to slow down, be a critical thinker, ask the right questions. Are we headed in the right direction before unintended consequences happen that have an impact on society that we we didn't want? We didn't want that outcome. And so, Andrew, as we think about one of the things I'm observing in the Web3 space is that when bad things happen, it seems to me that the community comes together. There is a sense of transparency, of figuring out where the bad actors are, what happened to that. There is a natural policing in the space, and there's also a natural solutions-oriented approach in the space. Could you just touch on that? Because you are such an OG in the space, and you've seen a lot of ups and downs. On What's the culture like on the kinds of things Tazine raised of these unintended consequences? that is different in Web3 from Web2? Yeah, I mean, c- community is, is the crux of it. Um, and it's through distributed systems and engagement mechanisms and connectivity where people feel part of these communities, right? I, I think, man, if you really want to dive into it, and this is kind of a little bit of a securities conversation, I don't know how far you want to go down this rabbit hole, but I'll open the box and you can go dive right into it. Um, you know, uh, especially from like an immigrant family perspective, there's a lot of exclusion in financial systems, like substantially, right? And, you know, I have a fundamental problem with the US accreditation system and I'm unapologetically honest about it. There's this huge financial gating mechanism that requires people in the United States to have at least $200,000 in earnings a year, $350,000 per household, a million dollars of like liquid assets, not including your home. I mean, just nuts in order to be able to participate in early stage investing. So if you wanted, if, if you were a, a mother of three, single mom, mother of three, making like 120 grand a year in Iowa, which is like actually pretty good, right? I mean, that's a really good spot to be. You still can't participate in, you know, pre-SpaceX IPOs because you, you're not an accredited investor. You can go to Vegas, you can mortgage your house, put it all on black. No one seems to care. But 
is if you want to be able to make like sound financial decisions and, and make some financial bets of things, you, you don't have you're legally not able to do it. And blockchain, we find ourselves in, in the first scenario where you can participate in early stage items, at least for now. And, and, and I don't know how long that will stay that way. And regulator, regulators are definitely looking at the space, but you have the ability to participate in early stage companies, right? And you have the ability to attach yourself to the upside of these businesses. This creates retail community because you're in there from the beginning and you're supporting it and you're an advocate for it and you're a zealot for it. And I mean, Shield is stuff that you're working on. I mean, it's almost agnostic to that. You've become an advocate for all these different environments, right? And you're onboarding all these people into these different environments. And it's the first time in a long time where people have had an option to do that. And, and they want that option and they should have that option. So I think you have one side of it that comes from that piece. And that's that, that part of the community. The other part of the community is the people that are, are building and developing in these environments and making legitimate impacts in this, right? Again, this open source idea, everyone can build on. The reason the industry moves so fast is because it's open source. People can build on top of this, on top of that, on top, and because and, all these people are coming together, it accelerates the industry a lot faster. And I'll give you a, a really good example. Uh, I won't go through the history lessons like I just did with email, but uh, virtual reality and augmented reality have been around a long time since the fifties. Like if you look at the first VR device, it looks like a torture, uh, like some type of like interrogation torture mechanism, but it's been around a long time. And it's one of the most walled garden, secure IP environments like you can possibly imagine. And it's been a very slow slog through its developmental cycle. Yet in the last 18 months, it's moved faster than it's ever moved. It's, it's moved more in the last 18 months than it has in the last 18 years. Hmm. And that was because the Web3 community and the NF community, NFT community and the digital asset community recognizes that AR and VR work really well with that type of toolkit. But that toolkit's open source. So you have to be able to allow open source uh, technologies to come in and out of these walled garden environments. And so what's happened is Web3 has literally grabbed that industry like by its head and pulled it forward into this environment and moved it forward more in 18 months and has 18 years because of this open source mentality, because of this community-based environment, because people now want to be able to build product in these environments that other people can use. It's not just owned by the one entity that is the one that, that initiated that, that tech. So that's just VR. That's happening with everything, right? Any of these wall garden spaces. Uh, so I, I think the power of community, the power of retail, is growing. I mean, if, let's use one more of a quick example. If everyone knows what happened with like GameStop last year, like, right? The retail market literally took hold of the stock and bankrupted some of the largest financial institutions because of, of their willingness and desire to drive this, this thing forward, right? That was a, a, a true shock to the financial world. And, and to us, incredibly exciting. Republic is extremely retail oriented. We have a retail platform, we sell to retail investors. We want to give people retail access to these things. We always love the example of like, what if Uber was uh, able to give shares to their first Uber drivers? Like, what would that have looked like? Like, would you have ever driven for Lyft or any of the others, right? Would you have been an, you know, an Uber advocate for life because of it? We, we are firmly of the opinion that you would have been. And that's about building community and attaching long tail financial upside to individuals who want to support a product or a business or an idea at an early stage.
that was been always been my dream, Andrew, and that's when you and I bonded when we first met is I always thought, how could caregivers at care.com own a majority of the company, given that, you know, they support the economy. Uh, they make all uh, work possible, the care that they provide families, but yet they are paid under minimum wage. It's this accessibility that I think the power of the technology can provide to the gig economy, to the retail, you know, technologists who wants to build on open source. So it's all just all pretty exciting stuff. So Tazine, as you're hearing sort of, we went through sort of a history lesson, which was amazing, Andrew. I mean, it's just enlightening and it makes it so much more consumable because I think everyone knows, you know, that most people have email and they have access to that. So if I turn over to Tazine and you're hearing sort of this, where do you want to see the future of Web3 and the metaverse? As I, I wrap this up, and of course, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to Andrew next on answering that question. We kind of went through a little bit of a history lesson, what's happening in the immediacy now as we're seeing the impact of Web3, even on technology, accessibility, and community. Where do you want to see the future, given your expertise in cybersecurity and your work at Cyber Collective? That's a great question. And I really am appreciative of the way that you describe things. Andrew, just I'm a wholehearted believer of storytelling, and you really do share it like a story, and it's so much more digestible. And as far as your question, Sheila, what do I want to see? I want to see all of the things that all of the crypto nerds, right, say that there's possibility for. I really do want to see a world where everyone is not only knowledgeable of this space, but they can adopt the use of the technologies itself and then also potentially in the future innovate, right? And I speak on behalf of, you know, the kids that are focused on translating governmental documents for their parents, right, when they're young and in the West for the first time, or the kids that started working at 14 years old and don't have the, the luxury, the time to research outside of sur being in survival mode. And so I would love to see a future where Web3 and the crypto space helps alleviate the survival mode that a lot of the people that I represent are in. And they can find information that is told like a story that is accessible and that is providing all of the safety measures necessary to through their adoption cycle. And I also would love to see a future where people are, while we move Quickly, while we are exploring and innovating, that we're always considering the downstream consequences of what we're building and how it affects the global majority and how it impacts the systems that are kind of in place today, right? I think a, a lot of ethicists are, are working on patching up some of the consequences of technologies that were built through Web 1, Web 2, right? And so as we consider that, let's implement those lessons into what we're doing within Web3. And so that's the future that I want to see. And I will tell you that I'm going to do research. And my goal by the end of this week is to <laughs> uh, finish reading the article that you mentioned, Andrew, uh, the white papers. Was it uh, Satoshi? Bitcoin white paper. Yes. Satoshi, Satoshi right? Yeah. 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 I'm going to read that. I'm going to get in a text message thread with the both of you. <laughs> and <laughs> and um, yeah, I, I'm just, I'm super excited. 
And the follow-up white paper is the Ethereum one. It actually critiques and also discusses the Bitcoin one in, in a deeper way. So that's definitely worth the reading after. It's more technical. It goes uh, deeper, but definitely worthy. Um, so Andrew, where do you want to see the future of the metaverse? Oh, man. You know, I think it's tough. Like met- metaverse is a, a term that's thrown around a lot. Yeah. But no one really knows what it means. There's no one yeah. metaverse, right? These are, there are all these right. little small uh, like visual or digital ecosystems that people are, are you know, dipping their toes into. So metaverse, I think, is broadly used incorrectly. Just this like uh, this overarching uh, sweeping term. I think metaverse is very early. Um, I think most of the metaverse technology that we see is, is still very early. I think that um, the next iteration of it, I think the current metaverses that exist now, again, are the proof of concept versions. And what we're seeing in the next iteration, or maybe even the iteration after that, are going to be the ones that have a lot more staying power. But that doesn't mean what we see now is not good. I mean, it's we have to start somewhere, right? Someone had to send the first email in 1969. Someone has to start the first metaverse in 2000 or 2022. So, I, I mean, I'm just overwhelmed with excitement. And I think hope is a big part. Like mm-hmm. hope is like a, a fundamental component of the industry uh, and the, the ability that individuals can have an impact on something much greater than themselves and, and be part of communities that have these impacts. I think it's super fascinating. Uh, I think a lot of people ignore the social impacts of the industry and everyone is so financially driven by it. But the social impacts I think are going to be much, much, much larger. And as you see larger partners come in and focus on adoption, that's going to shift that narrative quite a bit. I, I'll give you a, a, an example. You know, I was meeting with Fox the other day and they attribute, and I first, I did not necessarily agree with this, but now that I've spent time digesting this concept, I like, think it's 100% true. They attribute the ability for most of America to text. Do believe, Fox believes that they're responsible for that. And it's because they had, I think, Ryan Seacrest on television every wow. week <laughs> showing people how to text to vote on America's Got Talent. Yeah. And if you start to American Idol, that, American Idol, American Idol, American Idol, sorry, sorry, American Idol. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the correction. Yeah. Um, on American and, Idol. Yeah. And, and, and every week they would get on and say, text to this and this is how you do it. And yeah. they'll hold up, you know, some yeah. phone. And, you know, what is the social impact of that program? It's huge. Yeah. And, huge. you know, did they interpret it was going to be like that at the time? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. But I, the social impacts of, of this is, is going to be far more interesting, I think, than the financial impacts. And it, it, so I, I think that's right now where I look at find myself most excited is related mostly to that. I love that note that you both uh, ended on. This has been so great. I mean, the journey that we just went on was the history of email, the innovation by Satoshi that Tazin is now going to go off and read the adoption phase that we are now in, in Web3, and it's still early. And even in its infancy, it's so influential that it's bringing in other technologies like VR and moving them faster that Andrew touched on. And I love that we went on a journey of, at the core of it, the crypto and its definition isn't just about financial gain and the concerns that people have around fraud or criminal intent in using the technology that you both believe in the word of hope. And I love what Tezin said, alleviating survival mode. 
And at the end of it, that you both ended on the note of social impact. You're my kindred souls. Thank you both very much for being on this podcast on web. And we are excited to continue to have conversations like this that are meaningful. It's incredible what we can learn from one another. I can't wait for all of us to tap into the world of crypto and the metaverse, though it's a broad term, as Andrew said, while staying safe. Thank you both. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Webbed. If you've enjoyed today's discussion, please continue to check us out on all of your favorite streaming platforms. This podcast is being provided for informational purposes only and is not intended as investment advice.